Hello and welcome to Path to Growth, conversations with leaders on the go-to-market. I'm your host, Tracy Young, co-founder and CEO of TigerEye. Today's guest on the podcast is Alina Vandenberg, co-founder and co-CEO of Chili Piper. Alina, thanks so much for joining us. I'm excited to chat with you. Same, same. Very excited, Tracy. We both have a husband co-founder, <laughs> both dressed in black. We have a lot of things in common. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about growing up. Tell me about mom and dad. Where were you raised? What did they do? What did you learn from them? I was born, I was born in Romania uh, during communism. Um, and I came here 2007 in the U.S. Uh, so I'm an import. Um, my uh, parents were factory workers and the things that I've learned a lot uh, during my time in childhood is um, perseverance, grit, or very long hours. <laughs> I can grind more than uh, most people. And um, probably one of the most important uh, thing that I've learned as a child is that it takes an entire village to make things happen. And the better you are at collaborating with others, the better uh, likelihood of impacting positively um, the ecosystem around as well. Yeah. I can't even imagine being seven years old. And I mean, do you remember, do you have memories of being seven and your parents telling you, hey, we're going to pack up our stuff and we're going to leave? We you, actually, I, I did. Uh, so in during communism, uh, we did not leave the country. I, I left by myself after I finished school without them. Um, the um, but I do have very vivid memories of uh, the revolution in Romania, the communism time, the Big Brother um, aspect of communism, um, and the challenges that, that come with it. Yes. <laughs> what was the feeling? Was it was it like fear? Was it anger? Uh, um, the one thing that I remember very strongly is, is uh, the fear of uh, speaking your mind because that was banished uh, gravely. Um, any kind of um, criticism towards the existing government or existing politicians or any kind of um, rich, uh, any kind of uh, complaining of any kind would, would be frowned upon. But even worse, you'd can get killed for it. So yeah. there's a lot of uh, baggage and trauma there. Yeah. 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 My family, um, my parents were born in Vietnam as, as Chinese people, because my grandparents left China because of communism. And then the Vietnam war happened and my parents got on a boat with their baby daughter, my sister, and just left because they were not going to raise their, their kids in a communist country because of, Oh fear. my gosh. Mm. Yeah. And they're just like, you don't understand how good it is in America. I can say whatever I want and we're, we're not fearful. And um, this is like something they taught us early on. Like this is like we've, we've got police officers out here that we can trust and a lot of trust for, for the police force. It's like you don't have to bribe them like you do in a communist country. Right. Um, so mm. thank you for sharing that with me. Um, There's a lot of resilience so there. Then that's built on from that process, yes. Yeah, so tell me about your current role or maybe just tell us about the story of Chili Piper. So in Romania, I studied the engineering, computer science. I uh, became obsessed with uh, anything tied to computers because I felt it was so much easier to control a computer than anything else. <laughs> um, and uh, with that engineering mindset, I came here and I worked for various uh, companies in product management mostly. 
Um, I did sales as well. I worked for EdTech, um, FinTech, uh, HealthTech. I worked for pretty much any industry you can think of, uh, Bloomberg, Pearson. And um, my husband kept asking me to use my product talent to start a company. I kept resisting. And he said, look, every time you build a product, gets uh, amazing adoption, amazing engagement. Um, and you've managed to do it in any industry. There's a talent there. Why don't you use it to start a company? Eventually, I caved in 2016. And uh, we sold our house. We sold our uh, car. Um, didn't pay ourselves salaries for two years to build uh, the company. Uh, it's been seven years now. Uh, 2021, we got a billion-dollar valuation. Um, it's been a very wild ride in between, <laughs> and it still continues to be very wild. Um, but I enjoy the intensity of it and the complexity of it for sure. Mm -hmm. We both work with our husbands. Um, I've chosen to co-found a second company with them, and we have three children together. Um, oh, so um, what is your advice to people who are considering working with their partners, the people that they love so much, they want to build stuff with them? What's your advice to them? I don't think it's for everybody. Um, I know a lot of um, couples where this would probably destroy their marriage. <laughs> um, it takes a certain kind of um, mutual respect and admiration and that's extraordinary to be able to withstand the ups and downs of, of building a company. That's number one. And number two, it, it requires a very strong um, partnership in terms of uh, differences of opinion. If you have very different approaches to, uh, to pretty much anything and you don't know how to solve that conflict, you don't have mm -hmm. the tool sets to um, know how to negotiate and discuss when you have very, when you have on the opposite spectrum of, of something. Um, yeah. It's the conflicts that, that break boards, it's the conflicts that break uh, all sorts of uh, co-founders. And in between two married co-founders, it gets even more intense. So without those foundations that are very solid, it's impossible to start something with your significant other. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, um, starting a company is hard, running a company is hard, mm. relationships is hard, marriage is hard. And when you put it all together, it's complete chaos. Mm. But I think we are also um, examples that it's possible if there is a shared foundation of core values and basic tools for conflict resolution. What are you going to do when, you know, when you disagree? And I think a clear delineation of responsibility is really important too. And I see that both of you guys are CEOs. So how does that delineation of responsibilities look like? We've been shifting responsibilities across the years, depending on what we discovered that uh, we can make most impact. So at the beginning, um, it was uh, I was the CEO and he was handling uh, all our go-to-market, so the sales, marketing, uh, customer success. Um, afterwards, I gave birth to two little ones. I took a lesser role. I took uh, only the product piece and the engineering piece. When I, after I finished with the boys, uh, with the babies, um, I came back full force in uh, other departments as well. Right now, for instance, for the past 12 months, I've been acting CMO. Um, mm -hmm. So we've been shifting uh, along the ways on, on these uh, parts, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've you've worked in just about every part of the business at Chili Piper. Um, what's your favorite role? Like, what is you can do anything in the company, and as founders, you just have to fill in where you're going to make the most impact, as you said. But what's like, what what makes you the most happy? I tend to gravitate towards uh, innovation. Um, for instance, right now I'm completely obsessed with. Uh, AI autonomous bots, that's all I can think about. That's all I want to build. That's all I want to do. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I also get obsessed with uh, culture and keeping uh, the right kind of culture in a company is, is extremely important. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, if I was to pick my two would be innovation and culture. That would be uh, my current uh, endeavor for the next, uh, for the next 12 months. Yes, such a such a CEO mindset. So tell me about Chili Piper's culture and how did it change as your team grew over the years? In my mind, culture is everything in a company because um, it permeates to the people that you hire and the people that you hire are what are going to make or break the business. Um, and it's very hard to drive those values, especially in a remote environment when you have 40 different cultures because we have people in 40 countries and things are mean so many things to so many people um, and you can take things out of context you can apply things in a certain way and you think that that's what it means to exhibit that particular value that's important to us um, and, and and as a result the way I look at it is that if myself, I reflect the values that are important for our culture through actions and not with words, then those things will permeate. But it, it requires a certain amount of uh, exposure for every single one of the new employees to fully understand what, um, what's important to pay attention to versus what's not. Yeah, it's, it sounds to me that you really walk it like you talk it. You, make, you want to make sure that you're leading by example. And it's so true. Like, every person that comes in um, changes the culture in a way. And it, you know, with, it sounds like it, it's important for you to show and represent the culture that you want to see for each of your employees. Um, how do you preserve that as the culture grows? I've observed that around the hundred uh, employees or so, things have shifted a lot. Um, when we were smaller, it was a lot easier because I would interact with a lot of our employees and I would um, have a lot of conversations and I would always reinforce the, the values and the culture. Around 100, I don't know why that happened, that specific size, actually around 110-ish, was I, I immediately uh, became aware of that uh, palpable shift. Um, I was no longer the colleague per se, like I used to feel. I used to feel like a colleague uh, to them, uh, to being the figure that would be representative of bo both good and the bad. Because uh, on the bad front, because you have the, um, at, at least that's how the employees see, see a CEO, as the one who makes the decision that can impact their roles, even though the reality is that it's their manager and, and it's a, the system, but that's how they, they view you. Um, so with that power comes uh, a lot of responsibility in how you start having those conversations. Um, and the 
part that becomes a lot more important is the ability to communicate things clearly, especially when um, things don't happen as, as they should. And I observed that there was a shift in how the communication had to happen and the way my language had to evolve to be able to withstand that, that growth and that, and that culture at scale. Yeah, we, um, we saw the same thing at my last company when we grew to 150 people and you hit Dunbar's number and suddenly we, we as a species, we just can't understand more than our own group of 150. Beyond that, you can't remember everyone's, you for sure can't remember everyone's last name, let alone their first name. So suddenly it's like, is this my team member or not? And there's these weird dynamics, natural dynamics that happen. And, and then as you, as you said, communication is so easy early on when you're 20 people in a single room, you just yell out loud and everyone hears it. Suddenly when you're a hundred people, and I think it's a factor of hierarchy, right? 150 people, you're like leading maybe eight people. Those eight people are leading eight people a piece. And then maybe there's another fourth layer. And so that's four levels away from you, four degrees away from you. And I just think um, things get lost in translation often. <laughs> and so, as you said, that clarity of communication so that everyone understands the direction that you want to go um, is so important. You've recently written a lot about marketing and how it seems different from the outside compared to how it is on the inside. And you're obviously got a perspective on marketing, especially being in the role right now. Can you just tell me more about what do founders get wrong about marketing and sales? I found marketing one of the hardest roles that I've ever had. Uh, even though I've been managing engineering teams, I've been managing product development, I've been doing sales, customer success. The reason why I'm finding marketing the hardest is because it requires a very broad number of skills to get it right. And it constantly changes because whatever is effective in one quarter is no longer effective in, in a different quarter. And a lot of uh, its success is dependent on things that are very hard to uh, fully grasp. So for instance, the concept of a brand is highly tied to culture and is highly tied to um, how your customers perceive you from different touch points. And then you look at distribution. Distribution is um, very hard to nail predictably because markets change a lot and um, what can be effective in a in one corner loses effectiveness in the different in the next quarter because certain things, uh, whenever something works, everybody copies it and it no longer make, becomes effective. Um, so I found marketing the hardest, even though from outside it looks like the easiest. Um, one assumes mm -hmm. that marketing is about creating swag and landing pages and and putting ads or or writing on social media. But the reality is that it's a lot more um, nuanced and getting to a place where you have language uh, market fit in addition to product market fit, uh, you resonate well to the audience in all the possible channels at scale. If you have multiple personas and multiple products, it becomes really, really, really complex. Um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I enjoyed the challenge for the past 12 months a lot. Mm -hmm never heard that term before language market fit tell me more about that because i come from the product world i constantly think about product market fit and the minimum viable product and how to create engagement yeah. and how to create adoption and that's what i've been focusing for the most part of my career um 
what I discovered in marketing is that it's the it's the equivalent of that is language market fit, which is how are you how well are you resonating to your audience so that you get them to take action, um, right. and it becomes very complex because humans are complex and especially if you have multiple personas in a buying committee, what's going to resonate to everybody it will differ and how you communicate with each one of them will differ even more so depending on what stage of the process they are to understanding what problem, educating to the specifics of the problem uh, to the point where they actually want to take action. Um, it's a fascinating process for me. It is. It's it's both a bit of art and a bit of science. I mean, you have enough conversations and you start recognizing the patterns and the words that are resonating with specific profiles and which buyers. Um, and as you said, it's just uh, the humans make it complicated because there's so many different profiles. There's so many different roles. Um, there's so many different personalities within those roles. So one thing might resonate with this group, but one thing might not re resonate as well because of you know their own their own character and their own traits. And then I think competition definitely makes everything just, you know, everything <laughs> change because competition is market changes. And suddenly the terms you were using one day doesn't work the next. I mean, we saw this again all the time. I mean, after running a company for 10 years, um, it's, it's, uh, it is hard. You know what? I'm going to have to give my CMO a big hug when I see him because his job is really, really hard. <laughs> um, and I always joke that this is the group that just spends money, right? Like you're just going to ask me for more budget. <laughs> um, okay. Switching gears a little bit. Um, competition in this space is so fierce. One, because um, it's a gigantic TAM. There is uh, a lot of people involved here. There's a lot of technology solutions, um, incumbents and startups. And just how, I guess, how do you think about differentiation and competition in this market? I'm, uh, I'm smiling because we were kind of, a, I think the only company that I know of that for the first six years of our existence, five years of our existence, we had zero competitors which one would assume that it's a great thing that you don't have competitors because you go to market and people just choose you. <laughs> but the reality is that when you don't have competitors, people are not aware that they have a problem and they need to solve for it. So our greatest enemy was inaction. And if I look at inaction as a, as a competitive threat, it's a, it's a real threat, but it's a very different approach to uh, educating your customers on what's important and what's not. Now that we have some of ankle biters and some people that have started to copy our features, I'm observing that they educate the market. So the market is faster to, to translate to action, which is a good thing to happen. Um, but as an entrepreneur, I don't have yet the muscle formed to uh, completely respond to the, the messaging that competitors have. So for me, it's new. It's been like a year and a half or so that I'm uh, looking into it. I'm very i'm approaching it very differently than probably most entrepreneurs in that i'm by nature very collaborative instead of being very uh i don't know what's the opposite of it where you're you're going against with force uh to have a negative mm -hmm. impact on the others um it would come to me that word um but because i'm very collaborative i for instance i invite invited a competitor to a, a customer dinner um i'm finding that Eventually, the market appreciates the 
ones that don't punch. I'm, I'm observing that the, the, the market appreciates that there is a collaborativeness and understanding that there's big pie, there's big pie for everybody. And the goal is to have obviously a, a positive impact on the business and on the numbers, but also on the ecosystem. And there's enough, there are enough hard things in the world to just throw punches like that. I don't know that it's that healthy in, in the ecosystem. You are a very collaborative and friendly capitalist. I don't know if it's good <laughs> because, I have no idea if it's good luck. It's like you've worked, it's clear to me you've worked incredibly hard. You've had this tremendous success and um, the reputation that your product and your culture is positive, even from my point of view, right? So I think you're doing a lot of really good things and I'm so happy to have you on this podcast for our listeners to learn from. Um, it's just so funny because as you're talking, I'm literally thinking in my head, man, I mean, I tell our team that we are in a fist to fist <laughs> combat and we are in a fist to fist combat every day for eternity, as long as we want this company to exist. Um, so I think it's just different in, in terms of... I, I don't think there's right it. or wrong. I don't think there's a right or wrong approach. It's just, right. I, obviously, uh, this kind of competitiveness fires up people. And even in, if you look at athletes, this fire to beat the other is what energizes them. And uh, I completely understand mm. that. It's just that in my nature, I'm finding that um, I just operate differently. And that's uh, that's part of the culture. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I admire you for that. It's really cool hearing you say that. Okay, let's um, switch gears again. Um, what advice would you give to Alina yourself 10 years ago? So this is before you founded the company. Mm, probably to lean in a lot more when things are very hard for me in, in whatever stage of the journey I am in. Whenever things are very, very hard to lean into uh, ask for more help um, to solve for mm -hmm. those uh, moments because whenever I observe an, right now whenever I observe a knot in my stomach or like a body sensation when I'm having a conversation I'm observing it and like making a note okay it seems that something was triggered here in that conversation I want to understand why and why did I have like that response in my body that was an, an, a negative one because whenever I do, whenever I have a strong body impact, that's probably my biggest opportunity for growth. Um, and I know that's what's going to un unlock the next level in my uh, personal development. Um, and in the past, I have not done that consistently. Um, and I think I would have developed a lot faster if I did, if I would have a coach around that would give me advice on the type of things that are triggering to me or the type of things that are harder to unlock than, than other things. Um, if I would have understood the, the power of coaches and the power of support of people around me early on when things are tough, I think I would have grown even faster. It's, um, it's like in our natural instincts to not to want to go to where it hurts. It's like, let's just ignore this, especially for me as a young founder. Uh, when I was a young founder, it was like, this thing hurts. I'm just going to do these other 20 things and just ignore that. But that was exactly the wrong instinct because what was the hardest and what hurt me the most and what gave me, you know, stomach pains and made me sick to my stomach <laughs> is exactly the thing that I should have worked on. These other 20 things didn't matter. And then, as you said, 
casting, just like being able to remove ourselves from our own egos and being able to ask for help because it is very, very hard um, to find product market fit, to scale a business, to lead a team, to have, I think you said twins. And have have to have they're not twins, twins but yeah. Yeah. Okay. To like, to have, yeah, to have, and it sounds like they're close in age to have, to become a, a parent for the first time and become a mom and still try to juggle everything that it's taken me, you know, it's taken me almost 40 years to raise my hand and ask for help. And I ask for help all the time now because this journey is just way too hard. If I, if I'm not getting yeah, help. Yeah. We uh, try to uh, toughen it up and say, I can handle it. I can do anything. And then we realize yeah. like, shit, I cannot do everything. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How else do you handle pressure? I mean, you know, you've got, you've got your company, you've got big plans for your company, you've got your family, you're crazy enough to start a company with your husband. There's mm-hmm. constant pressure. Um, and I'm sure like, just like me, I just feel like, you know, you get punched in the face enough and it's like, all right, I just got punched in the face again. I've survived the last hundred times. It's going to be okay. But I do feel the pressure constantly to a point where sometimes I do wake up like gasping for air at 1 a.m. Mm. in the morning or mm. 2 a.m. in the morning. How does Selena handle stress? Do you have any tips for me? So I'm, I'm noticing that uh, the pressure doesn't uh, stop, right? It's not that uh, if you reach certain size or certain financial success, the pressure stops. It's forever there. Um, it only gets harder. This is the, what founders don't know. The, it only gets, the more success you have, the, the harder it problems get gets. a lot more um, complex in their na- nature because they have a bigger impact. Um, so every decision has a lot more ripple effects than smaller decisions in the past, right? And um, as a result, the our ability to push through those moments where, where, where it's tough, it's what matters the most. For me, what makes me, what keeps me energized and very, um, have this infectious belief, positive belief throughout the day is a reminder of the positive impact that I can have with the company that I've built. Um, I've removed the financial burden because we had the secondary in 2021. So I no longer have to fight for my existence, for survival. Um, and our company is also in a place where we are positive and we're growing. And so the, the fact that I have mental um, separation from the financial part helps me right now a lot to focus on the right things. But even if I would not have that, if I would not have that safety on, on financials, the ability to see five years or 10 years from here on my positive impact, it's what allows me to, at any point in time, create pathways to that positive impact, as opposed to seeing all the possible things that are going to be a detractor in the past. And whenever I get bad news and I get bad Mm -hmm. news of maybe like one customer that was very dear to me that's churning or whatever the, the might happen, I tend to look at it as a small short term obstacle. I put it in a box in my head. I say, okay, thank you, a box, for showing me something that I need to do better. Uh, I'm going to delegate that to someone else to uh, cr- create a solution for it right now. But I don't get bogged down with the short headwinds. I really look at that long-term impact and what I can do to get there. So my mind stays focused on the 
bridges to create as opposed to the small ripple that are creating some little wind on the way. That's what I've been working for me. Yeah, I, I really love hearing that. It sounds like one, it's a perspective thing. It's being able to really zoom out and not let the small stuff bring you down and to see the bigger picture of where you want to go and to have a clear idea of where you want your future to be and to laser focus on that. Then all the little things that come your way, I mean, either you're going to handle it or pass it to someone else, but I think that's, that's excellent advice. Um, this has been a really great conversation. I'm so excited to meet you up in person at some point and I, continue this, but thank you thank so you, much. Tracy. For joining I us think today. that I met you in San Francisco, uh, at the road shows, uh, it seems maybe, <laughs> um, and we can continue the conversation. Um, I'm excited to hear from you as well, since you've been longer at it than me. Thank you so much for joining us.